Uh, if you're visiting today, we're glad that you are here. We are um, going through the book of Romans, and I would encourage you, if you are uh, uh, looking for a church, if you are a seeker, trying to understand what the gospel is, this is a great series to come to. In fact, I would say that if you're a member of Redeemer, I would invite you to, inv- to, to encourage you to invite your non-Christian friends uh, who might have a lot of questions about what the gospel is. They might be very open to the gospel, but the book of Romans puts the pieces together. And so that's why we're looking at the book of Romans. Uh, Last week, uh, we started uh, chapter 2, and uh, John uh, ably took care of the first uh, few verses uh, through verse 16. Today, we pick up uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. So uh, let's read God's word together. But if you yourself, a Jew, uh, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that you have not left us to grope in the dark, but you have sent uh, your son and you have given us the scriptures uh, that point to him and that uh, help us understand uh, why things are the way they are and the great hope that we have in this fallen world through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for any who are here today that perhaps have never heard the gospel. Uh, Lord, that, uh, that it would ring in their ears today, that they would see the, the greatness uh, of, of knowing Jesus Christ, of knowing the freedom uh, that he brings, the forgiveness of sins. And Father, for we who profess you, uh, Lord, who have fallen into um, being law keepers, Uh, out of the flesh versus keeping the law by your spirit. 
Lord, cause us to once again be so thankful for what Christ has done, giving us his spirit and making us new. And we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. Paul tells us in the very first chapter of the book of Romans that he is not ashamed of the gospel. If you were to look at, at, at uh, the life of Paul, uh, read through the New Testament one time, you would see without a doubt that that is true of Paul. A man who at one point uh, uh, lived according to the law, was a rising Jew, uh, who is recognized uh, as a Jew above all Jews, uh, considers it all done once he meets Christ, and therefore he's not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, one place that you see this is uh, in, in Athens in Acts chapter 17, where, where Paul wanted the Athenians, the Gentiles, to understand it's not through vain philosophy that a man is right with God or can put the pieces together about life and how to live life is through the resurrection. And of course, uh, he goes to uh, the Areopagus on Mars Hill. You can see it from the Parthenon. And he's there and he preaches the simplicity of the resurrection of Christ. And of course, he is considered a fool. Uh, because, you see, if the resurrection is true, it cuts across uh, the very foundation of those who are what you would call the philosophical elites of, of the culture. And, uh, but Paul is not ashamed uh, of the gospel. But what is interesting is, as offensive as the gospel is to those who are intellectual elites, the gospel is more offensive to those who are moralistic, those uh, who are, uh, in fact, uh, religious people. I would say this, that the gospel uh, of grace is offensive to really the majority of, of church people, whether they are liberal churches, where uh, they do not believe that the scripture is actually the ultimate word of God, the inerrant word of God, and therefore what you do from the Bible is you glean from it and you glean stories uh, about Jesus and learn from his teaching. But it's also true uh, in, in conservative churches where the Bible is believed, the Bible is believed to be the inerrant word of God, but somehow in the process we begin to move away from the, the doctrines of the gospel of Christ more to the peripheral issues and uh, we miss the gospel altogether. You might ask me, how do I know that? How, how do I know that great majorities of people? Well, two reasons. One is the Bible teaches that. Jesus Christ comes to his own, very religious people. And, uh, and he had to deal with two... Uh, uh, leadership groups in Israel. One was the Pharisees. They were the conservatives. They were the ones that believed the Bible was the word of God. And they believed in eternal life. But he also had to deal with the Pharisees. I mean the Sadducees. And the Sadducees would be what we would call the liberal Christians. Those who didn't believe in eternal life. Uh, those who believed that you should work with Rome. And so Jesus dealt with them. And of course Jesus tells them that you study the scripture and in them you think you have life. But the scriptures are about me. You're missing me. We see this in Luke chapter 24 when after Jesus is raised from the dead he meets the two disciples on the way to Emmaus and he begins to expound the scriptures. And they were blinded. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't put the pieces together. And Jesus it says, And in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So that's one way you see it. The scriptures teach that people are missing the gospel. 
Well, another place that I see uh, that is uh, that I share the gospel a lot. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying, hey, I'm a great guy. I think I have the gift of evangelism. But I've talked to Christians and non-Christians or, or unchurched and churched constantly about the gospel. Just yesterday, uh, I spent some time, I, I had a coffee at the Hendershot on Tallahassee about 6.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock. Met a young lady who was not a Christian. She found out she was from my hometown. We had a wonderful conversation. She had her uh, uh, young daughter with her. And, uh, and we began to talk about the gospel. And she made it very clear to me that once she understood where I was headed, that uh, she had wanted to have no part of that. And why? Because the implications of the resurrection of Christ means that maybe the way that she's operating, the way she's dealing with life, doesn't work. And that she would have to submit herself to the realities of the resurrection of Christ. So people who are more intellectual are offended at the gospel. But at the same time, I share the gospel because I'm in, in the South a lot more with people who are churched. I used to be a campus minister at Mississippi State. And I had hundreds of students that were involved. All of them were churched. But I wanted to know where they were. What did they really understand about the gospel? I know you grew up Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist or Roman Catholic. But I would always ask them, let me ask you this. Have you come to a place in your life where you know you have eternal life? And the students would say, well, well, I think so. And I'd say, well, doesn't it make sense to you that if God gives eternal life, uh, that he would want you to know that? Uh, I would point to 1 John chapter 5 that says, uh, uh, John says, the reason that we have written these things is so that you might know that you have uh, eternal life. And, uh, and there's confusion among students. I'd always tell them that uh, they would give me the right answer sometimes. They'd go, well, Jesus died on the cross. And I said, well, you know, God doesn't do multiple choice. He does essays. So, so explain that to me. Uh, and they couldn't do it because there's confusion about what the gospel, about the, what the gospel is. And so, you see, what I've discovered is that people, and Paul understood this, that if you explain the gospel correctly, if you explain it in such a way uh, that they see the uniqueness, people have one or two responses if it's clearly preached. One response is, I need this. It is water in a dry and thirsty land. And on the other hand, it's offensive. It's offensive to those who are, are religious people, those who are moralistic people, because the gospel says to them that all your efforts are wrong. They don't produce the fruit of the Spirit. They don't bring life. They only bring death. And so the Apostle Paul, obviously, as he's writing the book of Romans, he is wanting people to know the freedom that is in Jesus Christ. But before he can explain the freedom that's in him, they need to understand, first off, they really are condemned. And so in chapter 1, we dealt with the question, well, what about those people who have never heard the gospel? He basically says, yes, they have. I don't have time to look over that. But he says that they exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped the created thing rather than the creator. And because they did, he says that God gave them over to the lust of their own hearts and gave them over to their own desires and then he gave us 27 sins, remember? That they were given over to. 
And so now we come to, to, to chapter 2 that John began to deal with. And after he says, those who have never heard the gospel are without excuse... He now says those who have the law, those who are moralistic, those who know the laws written on the heart, and those who are Jews, you also are without excuse. Why does he do that? Is it to condemn them? No, because we're already condemned. It is to get them to understand that through works of the law, no man will be justified before God. But the end, re- but, but the end result of Paul saying this is so that they might give up on their dastardly good deeds and rest in the finished work of Christ. That they might know the freedom that is in him. So here's what I want us to look at in our text. If you're to know the freedom promised in the gospel, then you must understand the bondage of morality and religion. It's bondage. And and again, I want to speak especially to you this morning who might be churched, and you might be at a point where you're, you're not certain of your salvation. Uh, you are a, a person who is confused about the finished work of Christ. And, uh, and maybe you've been a Christian a long time, and I'm not even saying you're not a Christian. But you've lost the joy that, that Paul wants us to experience, which is the freedom to love, the freedom to have mercy, the freedom uh, from greed, the freedom to give instead of holding back. So I ask you, do you have that freedom? Do you love your husband? Do you love your wife? Are you able to forgive? Are you able to accept the things that come from the hand of God and rest in who he is? Well, if you're not able to do that, you're missing the gospel. And you're in bondage. So here, here's what, three things I want to see. The, the bondage of law-keeping, okay? And then I want us to see the bondage of being a religious person. Because there's a distinction, I think, that's there. And then the last thing, I want us to see that freedom comes through God's absolute grace. Now, I know we hear that word a lot, but I want us to to, to tee it up one more time. So when we come to this, that we can appreciate what Christ has done on our behalf as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, that's why we come to worship. We come to worship Him who set us free. So here's the first thing to see is this. um, The bondage uh, of law-keeping. Of keeping the law, it brings bondage. Well, to appreciate this, you have to do. You do have to do things. Uh, we do have to look at this in the context uh, uh, where this verse uh, falls in its context. Again, Paul is, in chapter one has said that uh, that there there has to be a righteousness from God. There's a righteousness that comes from God because we have no righteousness in ourselves. And so he points to those uh, who have never heard the law of God and he says, you know what, you need a righteousness from God because uh, you're guilty. Your conscience bears witness against you. And then he comes to chapter 2. And he says, you who boast in the law, you who boast uh, in your morality, you too are without excuse. So there's, there's bondage... Uh, from escaping the law of God, denying the law of God, but there's also bondage in your efforts to keep the law of God. Your efforts to be a good person if you don't believe in the Ten Commandments. Paul puts it this way, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, 
and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? Uh, Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you yourselves commit adultery? And you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Here's what Paul is saying. The Jews were boasting in the very thing that God gave to them to point people to Jesus Christ. They were to be, uh, the Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. And so God calls the Jews, he gives them his law, and his law represents who God is. And his law is the standard upon which all of us can know what real joy in life is. And so God calls the Jews uh, to, to, bear, to bear his image. But you see, the Jews forgot that the law was also to point uh, the Gentiles not to themselves, Uh, but to Jesus Christ. And so the end result is uh, they begin to be exclusive about the law. They begin to say that we are God's people because we have God's law, and they set up their own moral code uh, off the law. And so in the process, they no longer cared about the nations. They no longer saw themselves in need of a Savior, and they became those who were teachers, but they themselves did not do what the law teaches. You see, if you're, if you're a, a, a religious person or you're a moralistic person or you're a person who does everything in the world to be a good Christian, then what you're doing is you're taking the attention off Christ who saved you from your misery and you're putting your attention upon yourself. And so what you're looking for, in essence, is the praise of men. Wow, that, what a great Christian person they are. Or what a great person they are. To have somebody say, you know what, you are, you, you are a great guy. But you see, that's all about performance. It, it, it's, it's all about uh, uh, your whole life being built around people uh, thinking that you're a, fi- you're a fine person. And so you end up being under the bondage of your identity being uh, a good person. A moral person. But it doesn't bring life, it brings death. And not only that, it brings death to other people because you want them to give you praise rather than go, hey, look look to me. I look to Christ. And so you see, the purpose of the law is simply to expose your need for Christ. Now let me give you a good example of that and then then, then I'll come to my next point. Years ago, when I first got here, there was a homeless man named Cherokee. And uh, I, I had been here maybe six months trying to get to know the city. And just across the street at the building that used to be the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the um, Merrill Lynch building, I, 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 I was coming to see Robbie, I think, and I go in the parking lot, 
And back behind a bush is a man uh, who is uh, named Cherokee. I found out later he was Cherokee. And I thought he was dead. He was in a drunken stupor. But uh, so I went to, to, to help him, and he didn't respond. He was basically unconscious. So I became concerned about him because uh, I, th- I thought he might be dying. And so I called, uh, I flagged a policeman down. And so this policeman comes uh, over, and he looks behind the bush, and he says, oh, that's Cherokee. <laughs> And then he, and he starts screaming at Cherokee to get up. And Cherokee doesn't move. And he continues to, uh, to angrily uh, tell him to, to, to get up. Eventually, I turned to the policeman. I said, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're a doctor or not, but I don't believe he's getting up. And he said, hey, I know my business, and I know him, and uh, he's just a bum. And he continues to yell at him. And I remember thinking right then as I was looking at this, what a beautiful picture of what the law does. Uh, but the law is not like the officer. It's impartial. But the law is basically screaming to us who are absolutely hopeless. There's nothing we can do about our state. And it's saying you need to get up. You need to clean yourself up. You need to get sober. You need to get your life straightened out. That's what it is. That's what the law does. The law can only show you your, your condition. And then I remembered I was just wishing that there was another cop who might bend down to him, who might take him in his arms and take him to the hospital. And you see, this is the gospel. This is what God has done for us in Christ, what the law could not do, and that we were helpless. And so, what would I say to you this morning? I would say to you that any effort to pull yourself up to, to get better. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm not talking to you not only as non-Christians, but also as Christians. I, I know a lot of you. I know a lot of the situations that you're in, and you're still in some way seeking to try harder to be better. Ha, have you discovered that that doesn't work yet? It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring life to your marriage. How in the world are you going to be able to forgive your wife or your husband if you don't know you're forgiven? What performance standards do you put on your children and put on those that you work with or work for or a spouse or a friend or a Christian if you yourself do not understand that you don't have to perform, that he has done the work? So it's only bondage, you see, because nobody does a law. But then Paul says this, he looks. Uh, he shows us uh, the bondage of being a religious person. Now, there's a, there's another group of Christians. Uh, the first group that we just talked about tend to be conservative Christians. They they, they hear the gospel. They go to Bible believing churches and they make every effort to keep the law and do what God uh, tells them to do. And uh, 
and so their conscience are always bothered, and so when you tell them that their effort's not enough, they become, they become offended at that. But there's another group of people among Christians, and those, they, those are the ones who go to church. Uh, they're not that concerned about law-keeping. They're just concerned about going to church and doing what the church says. Uh, finding your sense of, uh, uh, of contentment, your sense of resting in the church itself. You see a lot of this. And uh, these are what you would call uh, those who are sacerdotalists, okay? You ever heard that term? Those are the folks who go to churches that tend to be more uh, emphasis on the sacraments, more emphasis on the rituals, uh, more emphasis on uh, uh, just making sure that you do whatever the church says, and resting in the fact that this church has been here for thousands of years. And so you rest in that. Whether you're Protestant or whether you're Catholic. And so you go to church, and uh, life is good for the most part. Uh, you're doing what you need to be doing. But there's absolutely no interest in the person and work of Christ. There, there is just, tell me what I need to do to make sure that I'm okay this week. Am I okay this week? And then if I'm not okay this week, I'll just go back to church the next week. And then uh, we'll go through the rituals, we'll go through the liturgy, and, uh, and then I will be, uh, I'll be fine. Now, where do we see that in our text? Well, we see that in verse 25. He says this, For circumcision is indeed a value, and the Jews boasted in their circumcision were Jews. If you obey the law... But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. You see, what the Jews had done is that they had begun even to move away from the law itself and obedience to the law and said, hey, listen, as long as we're circumcised, we're Jewish people. Uh, We're God's people. And so their faith became a little bit more mystical. As long as you're a Jew, as long as you're a Presbyterian, as long as you're an Episcopalian, as long as you're a Roman Catholic, or as long as you're an Eastern Orthodox, uh, and you go to church and you go through these things, I've been baptized, I'm good. I read several commentaries on this, and uh, the Jews, uh, there were several Jewish rabbis that said this, circumcised men do not go to Gehenna or hell. Circumcision will deliver Israel. So how does Paul respond to the person who trusts uh, in, their, in their circumcision? He says, well, it, it, it's great if you're circumcised if you're obedient It's great that you've been baptized, but your baptism means nothing if you're not responding or improving upon your baptism. And and every time we do a baptism, we try to remind members that we are to be improving upon our baptism, but our baptism is not baptismal regeneration. I know some of you wrestle with the fact that we baptize children 
And, uh, but you see, we don't think that baptism of those children regenerates them. We believe they're engaged to be the Lord's, but once they make confession of faith, what should flow out of that baptism of the Holy Spirit and their baptism in the body of Christ is a heart that is responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we baptize children with water from above to show that at some point the Holy Spirit must come down to unite that child to Christ and then they begin to respond in obedience because they love Christ. So this gospel is offensive to people who have no heart for it. To be reminded that, hey, listen, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're baptized. It doesn't matter whether you're a wonderful person. Uh, What matters is if you're absolutely perfectly obedient, which nobody is, and that's the point of what Paul is trying to make. So how does being a religious person bring bondage in your life? Well, I, I think simply this, that in the back of your mind, you always wonder if you're okay. Am I really okay? I know I go to Redeemer, I know I go to First Methodist, I know I go to the Catholic Church, but really I don't know if I'm really okay. And so rather than loving God, rather than uh, being thrilled with who God is in Jesus Christ, you kind of don't like him. Because you see, you're not sure where you stand. And so keeping of the law brings bondage. Being a religious person uh, brings bondage. And that's quite clear from our text. So, where does freedom come from? Freedom comes through God's grace alone, okay? Freedom is only through Christ. It's only through looking to Christ. Where do we see this? Verse 28. For no no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that a a, a true Jew is not one who circumcised outwardly. A true Christian is not somebody uh, who just is baptized whether you were baptized as an infant or maybe you even walked the aisle at 13 and you said, uh, hey, okay, I'm saved. I'm, I'm off, I'm moving. No, he says that a true Jew is not one uh, who is uh, circumcised in the flesh, but one who is circumcised of heart and that is not by the law. That is not by your effort. That is by the work of the Holy Spirit alone. And what is the end result? Those people, they seek the praise of God, not men. Those who want to have a good showing in the flesh to say, oh, you're a wonderful person, you have your praise. People think, wow, you're a great great Christian. I appreciate you. But to a person who's been circumcised of heart by the Spirit and united to Christ, I will tell you the great sign of your salvation and being a true Jew is... You do it for Christ. Everything you do, you live your life before him. Why? Because you've been united to him by God, the Holy Spirit. It's not external, but it's an issue of the heart. 
Two questions and then I conclude. Well, how, how does this freedom come, the, the freedom of a changed heart, and, and why does it come? Uh, uh, how does it come? Uh, well, it comes, again, as we say, it comes by the Spirit. Uh, we see that uh, in, the, in the Old Testament that David was a man who uh, was a man after God's heart, but he was a man that was very, very goofed up, would y'all say? A man that had committed adultery, a man who, who had Uriah the Hittite murdered, a man who I read the other day uh, tried to, to do a census in the very last chapter of his life, and 70,000 people died because he looked away from God and began to look at the strength of man and David says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And the scripture says that God loved David. Why? Because he was a great guy? No. But because he was circumcised of heart, because God called him, because God chose him. And in Psalm 51, after he had an affair with Bathsheba, he didn't just go beat himself up and go, well, my life's over. You know what he says? He says, God, have mercy upon me. Wash, wash me clean, for it's against you, and you only have I sinned. And then he says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then the question ends up being, you know, it comes through the Holy Spirit, but how are we circumcised spiritually? I mean, how is it that the Holy Spirit is able to come to us? Well, it's, it's in understanding what circumcision is all about. Uh, circumcision was in the male child on the eighth day. And there was a shedding of blood. Why would, why would circumcision be the sign of the covenant? Because you see, before Adam and Eve sinned, the way that we would create men and women who would be glorify God was uh, through procreation. It would be a seed that would be passed on where men and women would be born and uh, they would love God and they would serve Him. But because Adam and Eve sinned, uh, theologians call it original sin. And now, rather than passing on from generation to generation, God glorifiers, we pass on from generation to generation through our seed, those who are God-haters. For the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. They've all gone, gone astray. And so God gives the sign of circumcision to point to the need of cleansing. But we have another circumcision the Bible speaks of in Second Corinthians, I mean, Second uh, Colossians chapter two, when it says that in Christ we were circumcised in Him. And what does that mean? That Jesus Christ was cut off for our sake, that we might have hope, and that we might have life. Christ is our circumcision. It is in Him and what He has accomplished on our behalf that we have hope, that we have life, and He is the one who has done it. He's finished the work. Paul's trying to pound this home again and again and again that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Now, let me conclude on this. A lot of us think the law is bad, right? The law is there, it's against us. The law really is good. And I'll tell you this, that people who tend to keep the law are much more, uh, um, uh, bring much more life, even if they're not Christians, than people who don't keep the law. Uh, people who give versus people who steal. Uh, people who rather than committing adultery or, uh, you know, they love their wife, they love their husband, no matter what. Uh, 
But you see, the epitome of seeing the law in a person is in Jesus Christ. He loved God and he loved man and he he lived his life perfectly and he loved everyone perfectly. And the epitome of a law keeper was Jesus Christ, but he did it from his heart because he loved God, not in the external. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit does when he unites you to Christ. Uh, Through Christ, there is no condemnation under the law and now you're not under the law, you're over the law. And now the Holy Spirit begins to work God's word and his truth in us so that we become like him. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have, you have absolute confidence that he has been cut off for you 2,000 years ago and through his resurrection and through the gift of the Holy Spirit that you can be united to him in his resurrection which is the work and fruit of the Spirit. If not, I encourage you this morning, come to Christ, rest in Him. And if you're a believer, um, you will not be able to love your spouse, you'll not be able to, to, uh, to respond until you grasp fully what He has done on your behalf. I pray God's Spirit would work that in you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you have sent your son to do for us what we couldn't do. And that's offensive to those who do not want to come to Christ. That's offensive to those who uh, want to establish a righteousness of their own. But Father, for those who are here today, for those who know there's nothing they can do, I pray that, Lord, you would cause them to see what you've done for them by your spirit and that they would rest in Jesus Christ and his work on their behalf. Father, would you work in our lives. Uh, Lord, that, that through Christ, we might circumcise our own flesh, that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we might live a life of joy and peace as we rest in what he has done for us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.